Welcome to Beyond the Shelf. I'm Scott Curry with Chef's Best. We gather to talk about the trends in marketing, retail, and production in food and beverage that are shaping the industry. We're joined today by Jeff Grog. Jeff is Managing Director of JPG Resources. JPG Resources is a consulting and business development group with focus areas of strategy and innovation, operations, and product and process development for food and beverage industry, particularly in the natural food space. Jeff has a long history in food and beverage, having been president of Snackworks, co-founder of Cask and Kettle, and also worked in R&D for Bridgetown Bakery, Kashi, Bare Naked, and Kellogg. He has a bachelor's degree in food science from Purdue, go Boilermakers, and is a board member for This Saves Lives, which, founded by Kristen Bell, sends life-saving food to a child in need for every purchase made of their nutritious snack bars. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. All right. So, so tell us a little bit more about what JPG Resources does for brands. It, 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 in a sense, you do everything, but break that down for us a little. Sure. Well, our goal is to help brands create winning businesses, and uh, that takes on many shapes and forms. It could be helping a uh, college student in a dormitory uh, get their idea up and off the ground and launched. Uh, it could be helping a, a mom who was um, making special uh products for their kids, you know, and helping them take that into a business uh, environment and, and create a $100 million brand in three years, uh, which we did for somebody a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be helping uh, a big global brand uh, innovate faster and more nimbly. But ultimately, the goal is always to create a winning food business, create an outcome uh, that allows them to uh, to have a business they're proud of. Right. So, in general, and feel free if you don't want to disclose this, but how many brands have you worked with? Do you work with it at any given time? Can you give us an idea of what that scope is? Yeah, right now we work with about 120 brands a year. Uh, we've oh, wow. been for 12 years, um, so certainly thousands of brands we've we've helped over the years, uh, which is great. We get a really great view of the market by having that lens. Uh, to all these brands. And again, spanning the spectrum from free revenue startups up to the biggest brands in the world. Uh, And we have an investment fund that we're a partner in. We see another thousand brands a year through that lens. Uh, So, you know, it gives us a really interesting opportunity to observe the market and to impact the market as well. Awesome. A great partner. And as you said, sometimes you can take them to the moon as well with the big acquisition. Uh, so we're in 2020 here. We're still here. Uh, it's, been, it's been a nice, nice, nice century of a year here. Um, just to timestamp this for everyone, because it things change so much. We're, we're recording on Tuesday. It's November 12th. So uh, where are we? We are uh, in what we're calling, I guess, the, the winter COVID uh, surge that's mm-hmm. occurring. We'll see where that goes, but uh, just for perspective, that's where we are. Um, in this oddest of years, uh, wh- where where consumer purchasing behaviors have, have been really completely unended, uh, perhaps are going to evolve again here over the next couple of months. What, given that you you know you have this great opportunity to to get visibility into hundreds or as you said thousands of brands. What are some of the blind spots that exist and, and are holding brands back at this time? We know some are being successful. We could touch on those. Uh, but what's, what are some of the blind spots or maybe we could call them points of resistance that uh, you know brands are struggling with at this time because they're not either accepting or realizing uh, you know, something in their kind of the reality? 
Oh, that's a great question. I, I think that, um, you know, early, early when this happened back in March, I guess, was when it really broke. A lot of brands just weren't prepared and they weren't prepared financially or they weren't prepared uh, to have a radical shift to e-com or they weren't prepared with enough inventory. Uh, so a lot of things happened that just, you know, the, that brands who are trying to run really lean and in a lot of ways, that's what you want to be and need to be as a startup really got caught out um, when they weren't able to make the shift. Uh, so that, that's really what we saw is brands couldn't deliver uh, or they, they weren't equipped to, to go where the consumers were going as quickly as consumers did. And obviously, if you were in food service, it was also a terribly tough year. But um, those are a couple of key things we saw. Some brands just were not able to get inventory. Uh, and, and if they didn't, if they're running really lean on that side of life, even if they were in the sweet spot, they couldn't make it happen. Did you see a lot rapidly pivot to more of a e-commerce or, or direct to consumer model and, and find success with that? Um, was that kind of a, a lifeline, if you will, that some brands were able to, you know, maybe sideline their, their other plans, but be able to you know, at least be able to survive and perhaps thrive by leaning more into that? Yes, although I would say the brands who are already good at e-com obviously took the lion's share of that. They, they, mm. They're just bigger at being better. Uh, brands who were, if they had to do a full pivot into e-com, uh, were way behind the eight ball. And while some were able to do it, many um, found that, you know, learning on the fly in a market that's that hot is difficult when when the companies who are already good at it are the ones who really saw the growth. Um, similar, you know, we've seen brands figure how to pivot from food service uh, into retail or, or into e-com uh, to some extent, but it's takes, it's taken more time for them um, because you have to have different packaging and so forth. So we have seen a lot of brands, the, the ones who could hustle and be nimble and who really just caught on quickly to what was happening certainly have, have done better than those who, you know, said, I'm just going to hunker down and wait this out. Those brands mm -hmm. have, have had a very tough time. And, and how's the, the retail kind of landscape changed and not necessarily referring to consumer habits there? Because I, I, my sense from that is we had the weirdest retail time in history when people generally went for their safer options, which meant let me get into the store, get what I need, grab some toilet paper, get out. Uh, that obviously caused some shifts. But what about from a, a, a buyer standpoint? Is it become more challenging for a, a challenger brand to gain some shelf space, gain the attention of buyers? Obviously, in person, you know, pitch meetings are gone. How, how has that landscape changed uh, given? everything from maybe supermarkets or looking to maybe stick with their products more. I'm not sure. I'm just speculating here. And again, that challenge of, you know, not being able to get on a flight, go to Kroger meet with people, wow them, you know, sample food. How, how has that landscape changed, if at all? It's changed a lot. Uh, although it's, it's come back a little bit. Um, at one point, uh, retailers on average had reduced their SKU count by 8%. Um, and the average store carries about 30,000 food SKUs. Um, 
So you look at that and you go, oh, that's a tremendous amount of products that are suddenly no longer on shelf. And that happened very, very fast. That constriction, you know, all of a sudden you got 2,500 items that are no longer on the shelf in your local Kroger or Meyer. Um, so that, that happened very rapidly. At the same time, all the launches or virtually all the launches for mid-year, um, you know, June, which is a big reset in many categories, you know, that's the April through August uh, resets generally did not get done. Um, so a lot of innovation was delayed, deferred, or canceled. Um, so it was super disruptive um, during that time for all those reasons. What we've seen now is a little bit of normalization where, where um, the retailers want some innovation again. They want some new items. <clears throat> they, I think, feel they need to differentiate themselves and give, give people a reason to come to the store with something exciting and new. But I, I think there's still going to remain uh, less SKUs in the store and uh, certainly the whole cycle of how you do uh, calls and visits with your retailers and try to build relationships there is, is extremely disrupted. Mm. So let, let's, let's look, try and look forward a little bit and, and get in your head about what you're advising. So let's say uh, Scott, Scott's peanut butter, right? This great peanut butter I've made. And I've made my shift to e-commerce. I was having some success there. I'm having a little bit more success there. I've got my packaging in shape as a brand, you know, as I got to be hundreds of thousands of brands out there, just like my wonderful Scott's peanut butter. What do you advise now at this point? Cause I was feeling like I was on the path, right? Um, you know, I have a lean marketing budget, but I'm, I'm making my sales direct to consumer. Maybe I've got Amazon going and, uh, but I don't know where to go right now, right? I, I feel like, you know, I, I, I can't get to where I want to get with just direct the consumer. I'm, I'm a $500,000 company, maybe less, but I, 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 I want to get to $10 million. What are you advising them given this current environment, the fact that there's hundreds of thousands of brands out there just like me, I've done most things or everything right up to this standpoint. Uh, what are you looking at? And what are you advising these brands to do right now? Well, I would start with the idea that fundamentals still hold, and meaning that your brand value is built on velocity um, and, and your brand value is built on consumer loyalty. Those things have been true, are still true. Um, so I think you want to focus on that. You want to focus on winning where you play. You want to focus on getting more turns with your current customers and your current avenues of distribution, that is always going to be the most valuable way to build your brand. That's still true today, uh, unless you're in a category that's just been obliterated. Um, so, so if you know that that would be piece number one is you know fundamentals still apply. Uh, number two, as we're facing you know a, a little bit more of a return of stockpiling and and a surge, as you say, is happening right now in many parts of the country. Uh, certainly here where I am in Michigan, it's uh, a lot hotter zone than it's been for a long time. Um, you know, it, it, you get back to in uncertainty, you need to be careful with your cash, but also in uncertainty right now, you should probably have some inventory. So you've got some flexibility uh, back to what happened to a lot of brands in Q2 this year where they just couldn't make product. Uh, so we advise companies to be a little long uh, if if they see their part of the market as having potential for growth, 
Um, certainly if you're in a more risky category, you might, you might go the other way and lean out a little based on what happened earlier this year. But at least now you've got a little bit of a roadmap. Um, if we look back at what happened in Q2, uh, if you're in a category that had a surge, you should be trying to stock up a little bit. And, you know, just communicate well. Communicate with your consumers, communicate with your buyers, and uh, be transparent about what you can do and not do. Focus on your winning SKUs. No point in stocking up on the tail if you can't deliver your core. Uh, mm-hmm. Just those fundamentals that, one, are always the right thing to do, and, and two, were amplified uh, in in uh, earlier this year when the pandemic ramped up the first time. We're going to see echoes of that, I think, now, but not to the extremes, most likely. Hmm. Shift gears a little bit, um, because you operate so much in the natural food space. Want to want to get your insights on that. And for years, it was understood that natural also meant poor taste or at least brand. Uh, not saying that's necessarily the case now, but I, I certainly remember that world 10, 15 years ago. Was like natural meant cardboard, you know? Um, first question is this, be, be, because we were conditioned, at least some of us that are a little bit older, <laughs> that unnatural tasting foods, um, were, were perhaps manufactured in a way that compromised, uh, our long-term ability to taste what would be natural. The, the, this, this has definitely changed over the last few years. Um, you know, there's wonderful natural tasting foods that are out there now. Uh, we enjoy them as a family. Um, what has changed in terms of innovation so that natural foods can, can deliver on, taste pro, pro, on a taste profile that the public enjoys? What, what, what shifted from, again, 15 years ago, if you can remember that as I can, natural meant cardboard, whereas now it's just, it's, there's wonderful taste out there. What, what changed the manufacturing? Um, was it innovation that you can get natural and not be compromising on taste? And again, that, that's at least my view and opinion. Um, you can certainly feel free to push back on that. But uh, if there's any truth in that, what what changed along the way? I love you that you framed it up that way. It was almost 15 years ago that I did a commercial for Kashi that uh, was the whole premise was health food doesn't have to taste like cardboard. Uh, so <laughs> I, I there's a direct tie there. So, um, no, I a hundred percent agree, uh, that, that the evolution of the market is that taste is much more prevalent or much more of a focal point. Uh, I would lead off by saying it's just a natural evolution of, of any market that products get better and get more, more holistically better in the sense of, you know, when I first went into the natural foods expo in 2000, um, I mean, it was, it was a hippie fest, you know, it was, <laughs> the first person I saw had was barefoot with henna tattoos up his legs and long flowing hair and wearing sort of a, a dress sort of thing. You know, it was, it was not, not what you see in, in corporate, uh, <laughs> like a foreign land in many ways. And it was really people who were zealots about eating a certain way, but we're, and we're willing to give up a lot to eat that way. And, and that's, you know, why it was a niche market at the time. Mm. As the, as more people gravitated to natural and organic and other healthy avenues of eating, um, you get people say, well, look, I believe I can eat. I want to eat that way too, but I don't want to suffer. So I'm going to, I'm going to make something better and the market evolves. 
And so really it's just, I, I think, a maturation of the market and the mainstreaming of it that you can't get there without taste improving. Um, but, you know, to this day, and really it's been a mantra for the last 12 to 18 months that we tell clients in many categories, the white space is taste uh, because many categories are still under delivering and people are too, too focused on the amount of seals and symbols and validations they can put on the package and, and how pure they are and how many grams of protein they have. And in many cases, what consumers want is something that's better for them than the mainstream alternative, but still doesn't punish their taste buds. Um, so I, I don't think it, it, it's a little bit of breakthroughs in technology or incremental improvements in flavor systems and technology, but mostly it's just a commitment to do better and to be better and the market forcing uh, that to be better. And, you know, let's be honest, there's a lot more actual food scientists and culinarians in the market now working on these products. There's a lot more money in the market now. Uh, all that, you know, things that happen with maturation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, I, I like to say that you can't out organic someone, right? It, there, right. there was a, a time where you could, because if, if you're the only one in a category offering organic and like you said, all the, all the different labels and seals that are on there, then that was your way of standing out. But once everyone in that category where there's multiple options that are organic, you can't out organic them. So you, you, you need to be competing on what are you left with, right? Price and taste effectively. There, we, we always like to talk about trends here. Uh, what, what are the trends that you're moderate, monitoring for starting investing and in, in looking to grow in the natural food space. I, I can't imagine someone in your position, how challenging it is to stay on top of this. Uh, there was probably a time where a trend, you know, had a lifespan of five years. I feel like now it's 12 months, you know, I, I mean, I remember when goji berries were a big deal, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and they might still be, and they might, and they're, I think very healthy for you, but I haven't heard about goji berries much, you know? Um, acai seems to have stuck around. Congratulations to them. Uh, how on earth do you a track these? Um, given that it's all coming in from it, it's it's internationally influenced now, right? There, there's there's always someone looking for a a new superfood to bring to market. How, how do you how two parts? How do you track that personally? How the heck do you do that? And then what are you looking at right now? Well, it, it is um, a crazy fragmented market compared to what it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. You know, these trends, as you say, there used to be macro trends and now there tends to be bursts of different micro trends. And so mm. it is to keep on top of, um, you know, I, I'll start with a few principles. We look for trends that we think have the potential to be a macro trend, even if they're expressed in different ways. Uh, plant-based eating, obviously. Um, and it goes beyond plant-based eating is not veganism and it's not necessarily meat analogs, but those are parts of it. But it goes beyond that. People seeking to eat more vegetables and fruit in general. And that can play out in many, many different ways. We want to look at that bigger trend. I'm not interested, frankly, in the next goji berry or chia because those ingredient-based trends always have a short shelf life you should never name your company after some ingredients. It's a, a, a career uh, yeah, move for, yeah. you, for your brand. 
um, you know, we want to see what's the macro of that, what's behind those trends. So we're looking at, um, you know, what what's driving people's behaviors now and is immunity finally going to sort of break through and are people going to believe that that's actually happening invisibly in their body? Um, you know, gut health, things like that. We see those emerging, the belief in the science of immunity and gut health and all those things, brain health, those are catching a little bit uh, now. Are they going to break through? It's Those are, I would say, we're, we're still waiting to see a little bit. Um, but, you know, the, the whole like fat is good, and whether that's expressed in keto or expressed in a number of other ways, uh, that, that leads to brain health, by the way. You know, it ties to satiety, it ties to weight management, it ties to energy uh, in different ways. So, you know, we believe that, that fat being acceptable and even desirable part of your diet is a, a fairly macro trend, uh, along with, you know, oddly enough, seeking out veggies. Um, so how do those interplay over time? So that's kind of where we, the way we think about it is we want to see the big picture and, you know, brands have to be a little more focused than that on, on playing through more specific uh, claims or attributes. Um, but we, we try to step back and look at it from a little broader perspective. That's a great, great piece of insight. I want to just accentuate that, that if you're looking at an ingredient as a trend, then, you know, it's likely you may only have a, a what, 18 month, maybe two year pop. You may, you may make a lot of money during that time, but, uh, ingredients come and go. Whereas macro trends, like you said, immune immunity, gut health, uh, dietary, longer term dietary changes, like, um, recognition of science-based fact, if it is, I'm not here to speak to this, but, um, like paleo or, or are definitely the ways to focus. And then what a, what a great point you made about if you're, if the ingredient is your product name, then you can assure yourself at best, you know, maybe a pop because you said Scott's goji berries, we had a big year, <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, they, um, you, you get 18 months out of that before goji berries are replaced by whatever seed or, or nut that's out there as that, like you said, the, the trend of the day, as opposed to, uh, you know, the change that people make, uh, that, that lead to different actual habits, uh, in lifestyle. So great, great insight there. Question about pricing. Um, natural foods are still priced at a premium. Let's say something is $2 and natural, you can probably get away with charging two seventy-five or $3. Uh, are there specific factors for this or is it just a matter of companies recognizing that there can be more margin when consumers are willing to pay for something, quote unquote, better. Yeah, I, I read a book and I cannot remember what it was because it was many, many years ago where the argument was that organic isn't more to much more to make, but because you can put organic on it, you can charge, you know, up to two X. Um, is there a reason for that? And then I, one of the reasons why I ask, ask this is, do you see a future where natural food prices come more in line with so-called you know, traditionally manufactured foods? Or are we going to be here in 10 years still looking at the $2 version and the $3 version and, and needing to you know, make that decision based on our own finances? Or will we get to a point where it's 
you know, maybe $2 and, and the other is $2 and 10 cents or something like that. It, do, do you follow, follow where I'm saying with that? And, and what do you, what do you see as the future? Can we, can we get it more in line so that more of the public is not priced out because there is a premium? Yeah, well, we could, we could spend a week uh, <laughs> on this topic, but to, to distill down a few elements, I would say one, the premise that people are making huge margins by just buying organic that's barely more expensive and then flipping into a, a high price is not really the way the market works. I don't know if it ever was, but um, maybe in a couple of instances, but in general, that's not really the case. I, I think the biggest, there's two big factors. <clears throat> One factor is if you're shopping at Whole Foods, you're paying more because Whole Foods is making more money, not because the brand is making more money. So there's an element of the natural channel being more expensive, um, partly because there's more fingers in the pie. Often there's distributors between the brands and the, and the retailer, and then the retailer, particularly Whole Foods, charging a higher margin. So there's a lot more cost that the brand is not getting that money, others are getting that money. Um, you know, whereas Kellogg is shipping directly to Walmart. It's a very lean system and Walmart is making half of the money per transaction that Whole Foods is making. So that's not a reflection of the brands and what they're doing. It's a reflection of the distribution system and the retailer and choices that are made there about how they are going to win in the market. And then the second point, which is probably the more salient point to your long-term conversation, the biggest challenge in natural foods is largely uh, scale, um, that most natural brands and most innovative brands are, are just not that big. And it costs a lot more to make a granola bar or a nutrition bar or a smoothie if you're making uh, 50,000 or 100,000 at a time versus mm. uh, making 10 million of something at a time. Your cost per unit is significantly higher, double, triple, uh, your cost to manufacture. So you, you've got the cost of ingredients that if you're using better, purer ingredients and you're not using some of the super cheap options that are available to um, mainstream manufacturers that would not be acceptable, natural, non-GMO, organic, uh, you've got an inputs cost. So that's normally in most categories, not huge, uh, but it's real. But then you've really got this scale factor it tends to be like the biggest sticking point uh, for, for many manufacturers. And, and then compounded by, if you don't have big scale, you probably don't own your operation either. Many uh, small and mid-scale brands are using contract manufacturers and those manufacturers have to make a profit too. So those things are, are the same if you're starting up a new Twinkie company that's not natural or organic. Uh, those issues of scale and not owning your manufacturing and going through distributors, those are going to apply uh, anyway. And then it's compounded by more expensive inputs. Makes complete sense. Uh, it, it, I think the, the key point there, it's, it's about scale and ingredients. And there's no way around that other than scaling. Um, and then, you know, continued acknowledgement that, you know, better ingredients that are harvested, you know, or, or created in a, in a certain more care way with care are going to, are going to be more expensive. Um, yeah, I would just point out, you know, mm -hmm. example of being very premium and they were contract manufactured and they were 
you know, not that big, you know, 10, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, especially. And now they're really, they're big and they own their own manufacturing. And you can buy a Cliff Bar every day, 99 cents and sometimes 69 cents, you know, so they've, they've broken through that a lot of those barriers that we just talked about and they're only premium between, you know, some other sort of mainstream bar and theirs really comes down to the quality of ingredients, but they've broken through a lot of the scale and manufacturing barriers that uh, smaller brands still face. That's a great point. Well, I would suggest any brand that wants to become the next Cliff Bar, <laughs> reach out to you. Um, great example of a, of a you know, a, a brand that did stick with it. And like you said, it's, you know, 99 cents now for a Cliff Bar without, uh, in my view, you know, the compromise on on the quality or, or you know, the natural aspects of it. If a brand wants to contact you, how should they do that? Uh, I know that they can go to jpgresources.com. Uh, I would also encourage them to follow you on LinkedIn. You're great follow in that. Uh, you can obviously just search it, but that's at jpg uh, dash resources. Is there any other way that people can find you, Jeff? Uh, sh- yeah, sure. Certainly, as you say, LinkedIn. Um, we, we're not that active on Twitter or other sites, so LinkedIn primarily, or um, you know, certainly our website, uh, jpgresources.com. Uh, and I'm always available directly at Jeff at jpgresources.com. Awesome. Well, I know you're busy, Jeff. We appreciate you joining us. You probably have a couple thousand more brands to check out and it sounds like <laughs> at the very least a few hundred more to, uh, to continue to guide through this time uh, and, and bring them out through the end. Uh, appreciate your insights into how brands are experiencing and thriving um, you know, during, during 2020, uh, focusing on e-commerce and like you said, keeping your, your fundamentals square is going to help you, you ride through this and, and survive. Uh, and also just that great overview picture of the natural foods industry. Uh, you have about as, as good a perspective as any. So we appreciate you coming on here and, and sharing what you're seeing and, and what you're recommending. Thanks so much, Scott. I enjoyed being on with you. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Shelf, presented by Chef's Best. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. For more details about all of our episodes from inside the ever-changing food and beverage industry, visit chefsbest.com.